right, before we jump into some scriptures, how many of you are thinking right now, what's wrong with his nose? Is it a little red? Yeah, so anyway, I've got some pre, pre-cancerous cell stuff, and doctor prescribes some topical chemotherapy, put it on there, turns beet red, peels, I look like a snake and horrible, yay. So that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, the downside to it is that I, I'm just disappointed because it would be in any way distracting during preaching. So I came up with a plan to cover it up. So we're just going to go right here. Problem solved, right? That's not distracting at all, is it? Right? So hey, so as I'm preaching this morning, I'm not down here, I'm up here. Okay? Okay, that's a little different. But anyway, but if I catch you staring at my nose, so help me, I will preach an entire sermon. No, I won't do that. I won't do that. That'd be more distracting. Anyway, that's what's going on there. Don't worry about it. All right, what I do want to get into is, uh, as we move towards the scriptures, some of you probably have a vision wall or a vision board, some call it, right? Where you put pictures up maybe of the house you hope to have someday, car, status symbols, vacations, travel, technology you want to own, whatever, the kind of beach body you want to have. All that are pictures that go on your vision wall and they become your goals. I'll tell you what, as I get older, my goals get much more simple. Like I want to do a project on my house during the weekend and my knees not hurt Monday morning. Hashtag goals right there. That's all I want. Just give me that. But Jesus, you know, Jesus has goals for the church. Is it to have a fancy, ornate building, a celebrity pastor, church growth strategies? No, no, no. He has very different goals. And as we go through these seven letters to seven churches, uh, we're going to find that he, his goals for the church are wildly on display. Now, these letters are found in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Pastor Jared did an amazing job. Wasn't that sermon awesome last week? Absolutely loved it. Did a great job launching us into that. If you remember, uh, it's the Apostle Paul, what Pastor Jared said, Jesus BFF, true story. So they were, the, the Apostle Paul was experiencing a lot of persecution throughout his life, actually. Uh, did you know at one point they boiled him in oil, put him in a big vat, boiled him alive in oil. The man preached the gospel from the pot. Stud, right? Just preached the gospel. So, and that didn't kill him. So they later they tried to force him to drink poison. He drank it. He didn't die. The man won't die. And so what the emperor does, he's so ticked at John, he has him abandoned on this deserted prison island they use. They just drop like criminals off there, and they, he puts them on Patmos. And so it's about 95 AD. John is banished to the island of Patmos. It's de desolate. He's probably living in a cave at that point. And there he is. Jesus shows up, and, uh, and he appears to John. In this amazing, amazing vision, if you remember, like Jesus, you read in Revelation chapter 1, this vision of Jesus, and John just falls at his feet as though dead. And Jesus says, fear not. Fear not, John. It's me. I am here. And he also says, grab your quill, because I got some things to say. I want you to write them down, and that is the book of Revelation as we have it today. And what he does as part of it, chapters 2 and 3, dictates these seven letters to seven churches in which Jesus says he has goals for the church. We want to look at the goals, those goals. Now, last week we looked at Ephesus. Again, a great, great message. This week we're in chapter 2, verse 8, 
And it starts like this. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, that's our city for, for today, Smyrna. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now remember that description of Jesus right there. But this particular letter is written to the church in Smyrna. Let's go back to the map Pastor Jared showed you last week. Uh, so in the bottom left, you see that white rectangle. That is pointing to the tiny little island of Patmos. And that's where John was marooned. But if you look to the right, the yellow, that's Asia Minor. We would call it Turkey today. And there are seven cities in red. Those are the seven cities that receive the letters. The closest one to Patmos is Ephesus. And that was last week. But then you just go north up the coast from there, you hit Smyrna. Smyrna was called the glory of Asia. Yeah, this was a very big, significant, wonderful, awesome, amazing city. The glory of Asia. It had an amazing natural harbor. Oh, you see it right there? So here's the harbor. Uh, it had an amazing natural harbor, which meant it attracted a lot of trade. Uh, it became a very wealthy, wealthy city. They had a huge library. A huge library as well. You remember last week, Pastor Jared talked about the amphitheater in Ephesus and even showed you a picture. Remember that? Yeah, Smyrna's is bigger. I don't want Jared to feel threatened. It's not a competition because I just won, right? This was the largest amphitheater in all of Asia Minor. This was a very important, prosperous city. They had very wide, paved straight streets. That was not common back then, but that's what they had. The most famous of their streets was called the Golden Street. It was lined on either side with temples, large ornate temples to various Greek gods. It was a very religious city in, in Greek idolatry. And not only that though, but they were big into emperor worship, worshiping the Roman emperor. This was important to Rome. See, Rome is this huge, expanding, vast empire. And as it conquers a new land and a new people, how do they fold them into the empire so they all stay unified? Well, there are various ways. One of the things they did is they never disallowed those people's religion. You can still, because if you disallow their religion, they revolt. So they didn't do that. But what they did say is you worship your way plus, plus the emperor. And that was one of the ways that folding all these various countries into the Roman Empire. Everybody worshipped the emperor. So you could worship anything you want. It was very polytheistic, very pluralistic. Anything goes so long as it is plus the emperor. So you realize the only thing that is excluded is monotheism. Monotheism's out. It's got to be at least polytheism. So now, Smyrna was particularly zealous about emperor worship. They were the very first city to erect a temple to the Dia Roma, the spirit of Rome. In 26 AD, they competed with six other cities and won the right to erect a temple to Tiberius, the reigning emperor at that time. They were big time into emperor worship. Toward the end of the first century, it became compulsory. It wasn't optional. Was not, you know, like, there's no choice in this one. So Roman citizens had to, once a year, you had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar, proclaim Caesar is Lord, 
then you would receive a certificate showing that you had done so and you're good for one more year until you had to do it again and get a new certificate. If you were unwilling to do so, you were then labeled. You were labeled as disloyal, unpatriotic. You were an outlaw and they would kill you for it. Life and death are at stake with this. Now, if you're a Christian in Smyrna, it's, not, it's no big deal. All you have to do is just burn a little pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar, proclaim Caesar as Lord, get your certificate, and then you can go on your way and worship your little Jesus. Do whatever you want. Except that we can't. We can't worship another. We can't say that somebody else is Lord. That's just not true. Only Jesus is Lord. So becoming a Christian in Smyrna was dangerous. It's dangerous. It was also very purifying for the church. You understand, in Smyrna, there were no cultural Christians, consumer Christians. There were no counterfeit Christians, right? There were none of those, uh, like, priesters, right? Like, what, Christmas and Easter, maybe a few, no, 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 it was too risky. It was too dangerous to be a Christian in Smyrna. You had to mean it. It's very purifying. So Jesus... Uh, feels for the Christians in Smyrna and all they're going through, and he has a letter for them. And here is the letter. We, we pick up the body of it in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And that's it. It's a short letter, right? It's kind of efficient. It's to the point. Think in terms of letters from Rick, not letters from Shannon. Okay, those are different, right? Because she has a lot more words to use up throughout the week, right? Like I preach Sunday morning. I'm done. That's my quota for the week right there, right? So, but, but Jesus, this is a very short, efficient letter. And what he goes at in there, he starts to talk about the Jews. Now, I want to camp on that for a second. There was a large Jewish population in Smyrna. But of course, think of the Jews. They're monotheistic as well, right? They can't proclaim Caesar as Lord, even though they don't believe in Jesus. And so what do they do? Well, they paid what was called the Jewish tax. Real thing. And they would pay that and therefore purchase the right to worship their God as, and without saying Caesar is Lord. That's how they solved it. Now, remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He came first to the Jews. He came through the Jews for the entire world. And many Jews came to faith in Jesus, but most did not. Most opposed Christ and his gospel. They viewed Jesus and, and his followers as heretics, and they needed to be stamped out. How would they do it? Remember, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they would go to the government. And they would say, hey, hey, look at those Christians over there. They're not saying Caesar's Lord. They're not burning the pinch. They don't have the certificate. So go get them. Get them. 
And it would be the slander of the Jews that would be the instigation to all the persecution that the Christians were experiencing. And that's why Jesus would say they're, they might be biologically Jews, but they're not really Jews. They are, what's he say of them? It's the synagogue of Satan. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? The synagogue of Satan. And yet at least Jesus is consistent. Write it down if you will. I want you to read it later today. John chapter 8, verses 37 to 44. Jesus says similar things. And the point is that, that the Jews thought that they were okay with God because they were born to Jews who they thought were okay with God. They thought it was a genetic thing, a lineage thing. But the New Testament's really clear. It's not about genealogy. It's not about lineage. It's not about religion. It's all about Jesus. And to reject Jesus is the problem. So while they were biologically Jewish, they were rejecting Christ and his gospel. And therefore, they were doing, unbeknownst to them, they were doing the work of Satan. And Jesus had a problem with that. Now before we go on and really glean from the body of this letter, I want to mention a few things I think we can get from just that. Number one, just because a place is a quote-unquote house of worship does not mean it's worshiping God. It's it just, that's Bible right there. All paths lead to the same place. Nope, evidently not, according to Jesus. Secondly, and I want you to catch this clearly, particularly if you're new to us or new to Christians. Listen, there are no second-generation Christians. There's only first-generation. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And you're not okay with God just because maybe your parents worship Jesus. It's your choice. You have to be a first-generation Christian. A third thing that we can glean from this is that persecution, you know, often comes from religious people. It doesn't usually come from atheists. It comes from religious. I remember when I was a student at Denison University, I was leading a student ministry that was proclaiming the name of Christ and growing and helping people grow was great. And uh, the persecution, we, we, there was somebody on campus who was against us trying to shut us down. It was the director of religious life whose job it was to encourage religious participation on campus. But we were doing our thing, not his thing, and it was growing. He felt threatened, and so he was against us. Literally tried to shut us down several times. I remember doing missions work in Mexico where the problem we had was the Catholic priests who were trying to shut us down. It is often religious people who do the persecuting, unfortunately. And then the last thing that uh, I want to pull out of it, notice he goes at, he brings Satan into it. Now, why bring Satan into it? Because listen, the Jews are not the enemy. Okay? The Jews are puppets of the enemy. The enemy is Satan himself, and we forget that at times. We're not called to ever hate any people group, including the Jews. Even your persecutors are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy, and we go way off track when we forget that. All right? There's no cause for hating the Jews or anyone else. Now, nonetheless, the slander from the Jews was leading to some really bad, bad stuff. And you see it there at the beginning. Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Let me tell you about that word tribulation. It, it literally means pressure. And we experience pressure, don't we? In life, people's expectations, maintaining reputation, people's opinions, 
lot of pressure on us. Marriage brings pressure. Children, pressure. Extended family, goodness, pressure, right? Or how about my, my dear wife who just pressured me on Friday to rescue a little puppy? And then she left town Saturday morning. Went to visit my daughter. They're watching online right now. Left me with the puppy. While I had a sermon to finish, there's pressure and deliver. There's pressure. Meanwhile, my nose is killing me and I look like stinking Rudolph. Are you kidding me? There's pressure. I digress. What was I talking about? Okay, so um, you have houses and cars. Uh, you know, more money, more problems. Stuff breaks. There's pressure. There's finances. There's pressure. You got to work. There's pressure. There's maintaining your health. There's pressure. And then you become a Christian. So now there's pressure. You got to read and study and pray and serve and give. And it's pressure and pressure and pressure. God says, I see your pressure. I know. But the Christians in Smyrna, <laughs> their pressure was a little bit different than that. It was persecution. You see, one form of persecution, torturous death, was to tie somebody staked out on the ground and then to roll a huge boulder slowly on top of them to squeeze the life out of them through excruciating pressure. Some were boiled in oil alive. Some were burnt at the stake alive. Some were fed to the beast like you're running in a coliseum trying to get away and they're, they're just mauling you. Some of them, they would flog them till their insides came outside. That's what they were experiencing. There are a couple reasons that uh, the Romans did this. Number one was for the Roman citizens' entertainment. How sick is that? But then secondly, it was to try to force the Christians to deny Christ, to burn that pinch, just say Caesar is Lord, and we'll stop. We won't make you die like this. That's all you got to do. You'll go free. And if it wasn't death, uh, there was also economic persecution. You see in there, I know your poverty. Now, this is not like American poverty where you can't get a smartphone. Okay, different. Because there's different words in the Greek. There's one that's for normal poor. This is the word for extreme poverty, destitute. Right? And you go, wait a minute, Pastor Rick, you said it was a rich city. Why are all the Christians in that kind of situation? And the historians believe it's because as part of the persecution, they were allowed to pillage the homes of Christians, take all their stuff. You couldn't get a job. They can't feed themselves. They're that kind of poor. It's a tough time and tough place. And God looks down and he says, I know. See the first two words? I know. He is El Royi. He is the God who sees you in your pressure, in your persecution, in your difficulty, and your pain. He is El Royi. And he says, I see what you're going through. I enter into the pain with you. I am that kind of God. He's El Royi. In fact, one of the things you might have caught is, you, you notice there's no correction in the letter? If you remember last week in Ephesus, you, lost, you, you left your first love, Right? Most of these letters will carry some sort of correction from Jesus to the church. In this case, God is just smitten with them. He is, his heart's breaking for his children who are going through all this. There's no criticism, no correction. He's just saying, I'm proud of you, and I'm for you. I am for you. I am for you. And then he's going to have some words of exhortation, how they can get through this. And he has two commands, two commands. If you look up there, the first one is, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. You know that's the most common command in the scriptures all throughout? You think the most common command is work harder, be better people. Uh-uh. It's God saying, don't fear. I'm here. I've got it. 
don't fear. Now, why should we not fear? And we shouldn't fear because of who God is. Pastor Jared wisely pointed out last week that each of the seven letters starts by highlighting some snippet of the description of Christ. Remember, chapter one is this whole lengthy vision of what Christ is like. Each of the seven letters pulls out one little bit and holds on to it because it's relevant to that church. And if you remember what Jesus highlighted at the beginning, he said that Jesus is the first and the last. Remember that? Smyrna, listen, first and last. Uh, That title is used of Jesus three times in the book of Revelation. It's also used of God three times in Isaiah. And we're going to look at Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. And the reason we're going to look at that is because I don't want it lost on you. I don't want you to miss what this thing means. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You know what that means? Caesar ain't Lord. No way. He goes on to say, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock I know, not any. It's just one God. This is Yahweh. If you see, Lord is capitalized at the beginning. That's to depict this is the proper name of God, Yahweh, the great I am, the first and the last. He came before all. He will be after all. He's the beginning of the story. He's the end of the story. The whole story isn't about us. It's about him. He had the first word that spoke creation and existence, he gets the last word. He is the first and the last. He has the final word, which means something. That so long as Jesus is on his throne, which is always, right? So as long as Jesus is on his throne, government does not have the last word. Your pressure does not have the last word. Your persecution does not have the last word. Your pain does not have the last word. Your critics do not get the last word. Disability, disease, they don't get the last word. Death is not the last word. Jesus gets the last word. He is the first and the last. He's the final. And so he wants them to remember that as they're experiencing persecution. The second command, as he says, Be faithful, right? Because he's the first and last, you don't have to fear. But the second command is be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He says, you know what the heck? Just go burn a little incense on the altar. Say Caesar is Lord. Go about your way. Then we can do our business. No biggie. He doesn't say that. Because as we just read in Isaiah, there's no other God but him. And so what he says is, be faithful unto death. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Like, really. He's true, and only he is Lord. He is worth it. It's worth it to serve him with your whole life, and even if required with your death. He's worth it. Why? 
because of who Jesus is. Again, remember they highlighted important stuff from chapter 1. The first part he highlighted was he's the first and the last. Then he said, it is he who died and came back to life. Remember that? Who died and came back to life. Jesus saying, remember, even if they kill you, I died, I came back to life. There's something after this life that's far more important. We weren't supposed to put our hope in this world anyway. In fact, you notice in there it says 10 days. We have tribulation for 10 days. Now, scholars debate, like, is that a literal 10 days or a figurative 10 days? I think it's figurative because Revelation is highly figurative, but uh, we're, we're not really sure. Here's what I know. 10 days is limited. Eternity is like a lot, lot longer. Like a lot longer, right? And, and so are you going to put your hope in 10 days or your hope in eternity, right? That, that's the thing. So, so don't be concerned with the first death. Be concerned. See at the end there, it says the second death. The second death is when you stand before Jesus having passed into eternity, not being a child of his by faith, and you experience eternal death. That's the second death. That's kind of important, right? So you got to choose. Are you going to be concerned about the first death or the second death? And, and here, Christians in Smyrna are like, I'm more concerned about the second death. Right? So I want you to choose right now. Do you want to be worried about the crown of life or, or at the end you want to have the second death? What you want? Crown of life, second death. Well, take your time. Think it through, right? Like, Seriously? I want you to be faithful, even unto death, to aim to meet Jesus and from him get the crown of life. Think through your goals. Is it a beach bod and a house and cars and travel and vacations and your American dream vision wall? Is that it? Or is it going to be to serve Jesus and if needed, be persecuted, but it's only 10 days and then you're going to go home and celebrate with him and get the crown of life? Which one is, is it going to be an American dream or a kingdom vision? Which is it? So here, here Jesus is encouraging us, like invest in the next life. The Bible says God will not be mocked. What a man sows, that he will reap. So if you intend to spend your whole life while claiming the name of Christ, sowing to your flesh and sowing to the world, and then you want to skip home to Jesus, you didn't expect him to clap. Oh, you did so great. No. Right? Because we got martyrs in this world, even today, who are serving Jesus and dying for him. They're banking on the next life. What a man sows, this he will reap. And Jesus wants us to know that, and that's why he wrote this letter. Now, I want you uh, to get an example of somebody who really lived this out well, and his name was Polycarp. He was actually a disciple of John. Remember, John's the one recording Revelation. He's on the island. What happened is the emperor died, and so John was then allowed to come off the island. He, uh, he disciples Polycarp. Polycarp ends up being the leader of the church in Smyrna. In Smyrna. In, in those letters then, because John got off the island, they went around to the churches. I, I guarantee you that Polycarp read this letter that we've looked at. In fact, I think he memorized it. I certainly know he lived it out. Because we have the record called the martyrdom of Polycarp. And I want to read a little bit of it to you. 
When arrested, the proconsul said, But what harm is there to say, Lord Caesar, and to offer sacrifice and so forth and be saved? See, he thinks salvation is in this world. Polycarp knows better. But when the proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath and I let you go, revile Christ, Polycarp said, For eighty and six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong, and how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp knows where salvation is. He knows it's eternal. He knows it's settled. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Polycarp answered him, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you are ignorant of who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. For Polycarp, that that narrowed his options. He knew who he was and where he was headed. And the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will deliver you to them unless you repent meaning repent of Jesus and turn to to Caesar. And he said, call for them. (laughs) What a stud. Go get your little animals. Call for them. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed to us, but it is good to change from evil to righteousness. And he said to him again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beasts unless you repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. (laughs) So they bound him to the stake and they set the wood in place. And before lighting it, Polycarp prayed. Here's a portion of his prayer. He said, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, I bless you that you have counted me worthy of this day and hour that I might be in the number of the martyrs. He is thanking God that he's about to be burned at the stake on his behalf. And he says, among these may I be received before you today in a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you have beforehand prepared and revealed. He's looking forward to being received in the presence of Christ and getting the crown of life. And so he says amen, and at that moment it says that the firemen lit the fire. Uh, One of the things legend tells us is that his body was not consumed by the flames. Instead, they all smelled incense. Isn't that interesting? He wouldn't burn the pinch of incense to Caesar. Now he's offering his incense to Christ. Since his body was not being consumed by the flames, then uh, the proconsul commanded that he be stabbed with spears, so they just start pincushioning him, like stabbing over and over. It, it says legend again, but a dove came out of him. So much blood gushed out of him that it quenched the fire, and he bled out, and that's how he died. Now what we notice is that Polycarp did not fear. Why? Because he knew the proconsul was not the last word. Jesus is the first and the last. And he was okay. And was he faithful unto death? Oh, absolutely. But why? Because he knew that there was something after death, and he didn't care about the first death. He was looking forward to the crown of life. 
And Polycarp knew Jesus, and so his goals were really clear. Could you imagine what Polycarp's vision wall looked like? Probably a little different than ours, right? In fact, here's an ancient picture of the martyrdom of Polycarp. We might push this out on social media. You can Google or whatever, find it. What I want you to do is I want you to print that thing out, and you put that on your vision wall. Children of God, there it is. Could we be like Polycarp? That's serious stuff. Hashtag goals. Right there. Now, how do we apply this? Well, first question. What if I'm not faithful unto death? Good news. Jesus was. And nobody ever told you that your salvation depends on your faithfulness. It depends on Christ. So be at ease. But I want you to examine your goals. To re-examine them. Your vision wall. A lot of times our goals as Christians are a lot like our, our neighbor's. The American dream of health and wealth and comfort and pleasure. And what we do is we become Christians, so now we're asking God to help us get all the stuff of this world. Right? So we're co-opting God to get us that stuff. What we're doing in that moment is we are looking to have Jesus plus Caesar. We'll still say Jesus, but we'll burn a little pinch on the cultural idol. We're still pursuing the cultural goods saying we can have both. You can have Jesus plus Caesar. You can have both. So what's it mean to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar in our day and age? Well, first of all, don't question the wisdom of this world. Parrot the party line. Whatever it is, whether it's your Republican or Democratic party, parrot their line. Don't question the wisdom of this world. Don't say that the world's morality is wrong. Their sinful sexuality and their drunkenness and their greed and materialism and oppression. No, no, no. Don't, don't question that. Don't question that. In fact, you can participate too. You can have Jesus and Caesar. And then don't say Jesus is the only way. Oh, no, no, no. Polytheism, pluralism, all paths lead to the same God. And certainly don't preach the gospel. Don't do that. Now, if you do all that, then the culture will love you. And now you can go on your way and practice your quote-unquote Christianity or whatever's left of it and try to have both. One of the problems with that approach, if that's your vision wall, if that's your approach, then eventually suffering and pain, maybe person, stuff's going to hit your life and it's going to be disorienting. It's going to shake you to the core. Why? Because you've trusted in the things of this world and the things of this world are being taken from you. See, that's not the route Polycarp went. Why? Polycarp had a very different vision wall. He had different goals. He didn't want to just die for Christ. He lived for him. Catch that. I, I think that can be harder. Dying for Christ, that might take an hour. I don't know. Living for him, so far it's taken 50 years. So, so that, I think that's harder. And so he was looking to serve Jesus hardcore to advance his kingdom. But notice this. He didn't only live for Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He got to know him and love him and worship him. It was beautiful. And when required... He died for him, giving glory to God. And then he went home to him, to Jesus, and received the crown of life. That's what it's like. And if those are your goals, 
That's your vision wall. Then look, when the hardship of this world hits our lives, whatever. I don't care. Because I'm not worried about the first death. I'm worried about the crown of life, right? Now, the reason I go into all this is because you might think that persecution against Christians is ancient history. We live so insulated in our American society today. But you've got to know, beating Christians, imprisoning them, and torturing them, and killing them, that is going on in our world today. And it, there's more persecution against Christians now than any time in history. We're just ignorant of it. Here's what I want you to catch. The world always persecutes Jesus. And here's why. He's countercultural. He challenges the world's value system. He's holy and he's convicting. He lifts up the Father. He points to eternity. He says, I am the only way to God. He is a threat to the world system. The world always persecutes Jesus question. Will the world persecute you? And the way you'll find out is what will the world see in you? If they see Jesus in you, they will persecute you. But the world never persecutes itself. See where that's heading? And so if they look in your life and they see that you burnt the pinch to Caesar and they see that you will say Caesar's Lord and you'll knuckle under that, they say they're good with us, they're just us. The world never persecutes itself. Which will be your path. Now listen, I, I thought about ending the sermon there. And I'm like, that's kind of heavy. So let me just remind you this. He is Elroy. He's the God who sees you in your pressure and pain. He's the first and the last. He died. He came back to life. He's saying, do not fear. Be faithful unto death. And receive the crown of life. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the chance we've had to gather as your children. If we're honest before you right now, uh, while we absolutely love you and are your children by grace, no doubt, our goals get a little bit murky. And we burn a little pinch to Caesar. And we accept the vision wall of this world. And that does not flow from you, from your spirit, from your scriptures. And we want you to make us a little bit more like Polycarp. We want you to clarify our vision, our, our goals. We might be a little bit more like what is on your heart. And we pray for that in Christ's name.